Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, <clears throat> a familiar passage. Brethren, let's hear the Word of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of this precious word to our hearts tonight. <clears throat> well, perhaps among those who love God's grace, there is no more well-known verse than Ephesians 2, verse 8. It is often one of the first verses learned by new converts to the faith, and one that older saints point them to with great regularity. <clears throat> but like many verses memorized and isolated from their context, it's easy to miss some of its most important lessons. It is true that this wonderful passage teaches that we are saved by faith and not by our works. But that's not all that it's about. And very often that's the only context that it's preached in. Now, of course, we have no argument with that. It's just that there's more to the story. There's more to the verse, especially in its context. This passage teaches that salvation by grace is God's work within us that brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus. And many who quote that verse don't believe that truth. And this is what we want to get at this evening. Now we have considered for several messages the doctrine of efficacious grace. Uh, <clears throat> none of these have been e exhaustive studies. Uh, these have been, uh, I trust, uh, obviously connected, but uh, they've been fairly loose, loosely structured studies. But for the purpose of, of looking at these great doctrines that we call the doctrines of grace. Now, <clears throat> the doctrine of efficacious grace includes what the Bible refers to, refers to as calling uh, and the new birth. This efficacious grace always brings about what we refer to as conversion. We find this word in Acts chapter 15, verse 3, which tells us that Paul and Barnabas passed through Phenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. They went to these places <clears throat> in the very midst of a controversy. On their way to Jerusalem, <clears throat> they stopped and they passed along the good news that the Gentiles were being converted to Christ. Now, of course, the, the controversy there was that there were some from Jerusalem coming down to Antioch and other places and telling the new believers that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be Christians. Paul vehemently stood against this doctrine, and he was sent by his assembly up to the church in Jerusalem to hammer out the issues. But that's not our point. The primary point is that along the way, he was telling others about the conversion of the Gentiles. <clears throat> now the word in Greek translated conversion literally means turning around, turning toward. <clears throat> and it can mean changing one's beliefs or changing one's behavior. There's a great... Um, discussion among the commentators as to which of those two is meant here, and I think uh, this is a case where it has to mean both. Brethren, truly changing our beliefs in conversion means a change of our behavior. A true change of what we believe will ultimately change how we live. And this is what we find all through the Scriptures. But whether you uh, agree with that or whether you take one of the sides that it must be one or the other 
there was a conversion of the Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were brought from, they were turned from their paganism to the Lord Jesus. Paul rejoiced in that and told those at Phoenice and Samaria about it. Now we can, destri- uh, we can describe conversion as a two-sided coin. The negative side of that coin is repentance. The positive side is faith. The two go together and they are inseparable. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior or change of action. While faith is the act of believing. So in conversion, one turns from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the whole idea. Conversion means to turn. Turning from sin to the Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith. Changing our mind that turns us to trust in Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that in this conversion, both repentance and faith spring from the new birth. Both are gifts of divine grace. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Again, we see the same in Acts 11 verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 reveals that faith, the positive side of conversion, is also a gift of God. And that's where we want to uh, spend most of our time this evening. So we want to consider two things tonight as we close our study of efficacious grace. We're coming to the end of uh, these studies and then we will move on to our last doctrine of grace. And uh, when we are finished with that, we'll have completed our first time through this important uh, collection, this, this important series of doctrines. So we want to consider the power of efficacious grace this evening and the objections to efficacious grace. The power and the objections to efficacious grace. Now, when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, context is absolutely vital. Because very often, even those who are world-class authority in the languages disagree with how certain words are to be understood grammatically and how they're, be, how they're to be understood and how they are to be interpreted. So, <clears throat> context is almost always the, the, the deciding factor and that's why it's vital that we don't simply proof text everything. We want to see those texts within their context. Let's read from the beginning of chapter 2. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of of disobedience. The first, first thing to see is that <clears throat> these that are classified, these that are declared as being dead, are quite obviously very much alive physically. The death here being spoken of is spiritual death. And the meaning is separation. The word death in the Scriptures doesn't mean termination as such. It means separation. When someone, quote, dies physically... His spirit separates from his body. But his spirit goes on living. 
his biological life, quote, may be terminated, the soul was very much alive. Spiritually speaking, the idea of death here is separated. We are separated because of our sins from God. And this is why we need to be made alive. In other words, brought into union with Him. So when Paul says <clears throat> that uh, in time past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, he's saying we lived a particular way because we were dead. <laughs> the life that we were living was death. And we're considered by God dead judicially because the law damns us unto perdition, and because we are separated from God, which is death. This life that we go on leading in its selfishness and its rebellion only leads to eternal separation from God. This is death. And so, the life lived while separated from God is just one death in time and space and history that is heading toward eternal death in hell unless something happens, unless someone intervenes. Now, verse 3 says, "...among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." This life of living in lust, this life fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, comes because we're dead, separated from God, spiritually cut off. And please note, Paul includes himself, whom also we all, he was a religious man, and yet recognized that his very fervor in attempting to obey the laws of Moses and be uh, a, a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, was nothing but death. He was cut off and separated from God, even though an intensely religious man. But God, two of the most important words in the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Alright, here are those who are the, the walking dead. Spiritually cut off from God and living life of, uh, lives of lust, of the flesh, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Children of wrath, dead in sins, but by God's mercy and grace, made alive, quickened, as we saw in our last study. This whole idea of God making alive, brethren, is the very issue of grace. It isn't just that God gave His Son on behalf of those who were unworthy. That is true, and that was gracious. But it is when God comes and makes the dead alive to look to Christ, that that grace becomes a reality, a living reality in the heart and soul of a once dead sinner. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive, together, union with the living Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Notice that the word grace keeps showing up here. This is God's grace, the exceeding riches of God's grace. What, what is? Making dead sinners alive with Christ. That's why 
verse 8 begins with for. That little connector word connects to everything that he's just said in these last seven verses. For, by grace, ye are saved through faith. In other words, salvation by grace through faith is the result of dead sinners being made alive in Christ. Does everyone see that? And really, this really think it flows very clearly, very obviously, if you look at the context. Now, you see, those who don't agree with us about this issue of faith being a gift usually turn to this argument. They will say, Ah, you fellows that believe in predestination and election. You fellows that don't believe in free will. You're making a great mistake here because grammatically the word faith is a feminine noun. And when it says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, feminine noun, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that pronoun, that is neuter. So it can't be referring to that feminine noun. Now, who's heard that? I know at least one of you has to. Right. I, I knew you did. Anyone else ever heard that? I have. heard that several, many times. Okay. In fact, I've actually even heard it here <laughs> in my office. So, <clears throat> they say, well, that's it. You have no argument. Grace is feminine. That is neuter. Eh. You've got nothing to stand on. Well, that sounds like a, a, a daunting argument if we stop there. But if we study the whole verse and look at it carefully, there's some other issues that we have to consider. First of all, <clears throat> the word grace is feminine also. For by grace, feminine now, are you saved through Faith, feminine. So, if we take their argument literally, that can't refer to grace either. So, grace can't be the gift of God. Now, who's, real, who's willing to die on that hill? Yeah, that's, that's not a battle you want to go into. You've got to deny your gospel. Brethren, <clears throat> We have to be very careful with arguments from the languages. We're not throwing this out. It's very important. But it's a part of our interpreting Scripture. We have to look at a lot of things when we interpret the Word of God. And not simply, not excluding, but not simply grammatical arguments. Because everyone comes with their particular grammatical arguments and each generation believes they've learned a little more than the fellows before them. Now, we, we don't want to be stuck with saying grace isn't the gift of God. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> so how do we handle this? How are we to understand it? Well, I don't want to bore you because uh, with, with Greek grammar, first of all, I'm no authority in it whatsoever. I do try to read those who are. But <clears throat> I can say to you, that after much reading and much study in this, authorities in the Greek language do agree. There are some that do agree, even those, some that do not hold our position, that the word that can indeed refer to faith and take, and some take that position. It can, and in fact, uh, I can, for those of you interested, I'll be happy to show you some footnotes where uh, there are several places in the New Testament where feminine nouns have a neuter pronoun. So it is not something outside of the Greek language. <clears throat> but there are others who take the position that the whole clause, for by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, that the whole clause is what that is pointing to. 
And that can work grammatically as well. Of course, what we have to understand is that if that's the case, faith is included. So either way, grammatically, we can point to our position. But what's far more important, brethren, is not just trying to get into, you know, an arm wrestling over grammar. It's important. But look at the context. Look at the context. There are dead sinners cut off from God. And there's no hope for them until they're quickened together with Christ. And all of that precedes verse 8. And verse 8 is concluding what's being said in these first seven verses. You see, look at the contrast between dead and alive. We were dead, separated from God. If we're dead and separated from God, how in the world do dead men get themselves alive? We completely lose the point of the word if somehow or another dead men can do something for themselves. Does everybody see that? I mean, this really is fairly basic. Please go out to the to the nearest seminary. Uh, I did not mean that. I really didn't mean that. Go out to the nearest cemetery. That used to be a joke. I, I was not being facetious. I don't know where that came from. But the go out to the nearest cemetery and stand in the afternoon after much prayer and, and meditative thought and and command all day for those people to get up out of the grave. Apart from the fact that, that there would be those who would find this an unnatural practice. The thing is, why is it that they can't get out? Why won't they come up? They're dead. They are unable. The very concept of death speaks inability. If we're dead, we can't do something to make ourselves alive. I mean, this is not a complex argument. It is amazing that it is an argument in the face of the plain declarations of Scripture. But, having said that, if we're dead and we are made alive, how? Quickened together with Christ, that is something that someone outside us has done. Because dead men can't effect that. Or we have to have a new definition for dead. Look at the contrast between faith and works. It says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's a comparison. Works is something that dead men might do dead spiritually. They can do works. Paul was dead and he did all kinds of works and boasted about them. The Jews were dead. Uh, Jesus said you're like, you're like a whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You are spiritually separated from God, but you're unable to do that which is necessary. You can do works, but you cannot exercise faith in Christ. Faith is contrasted here as God's gift opposing man's works. It's not contrasting man's faith with man's works. It is contrasting what God does for the dead sinner as opposed to what he in his deadness can do. Now, it therefore says, For, by grace, that which you cannot do of yourself, what God in His mercy and kindness does to you, you are saved 
through faith. Yes, we do exercise faith. We believe. God does not believe for us. Well, where does this faith come from in dead men? That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, quite obviously, if we could boast of our works, if we can work up faith, we can boast in our faith. Can we not? So, the contrast is what God does for the dead sinner as opposed to what the dead sinner can produce in himself. <clears throat> for we are his workmanship. And there it is again. We are his. We are his workmanship. How is it that the dead men believe? We're his workmanship. We believe on Christ unto everlasting life because we've been made alive through union with Him. And living men believe. Who gets the glory? The workmen. The living God. We are His workmanship. For by grace are you saved through faith. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we are saved. But that saving faith that lays hold of the glorious promise of the resurrected Savior comes from God's holy mercy and regenerating grace. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Created in Christ Jesus. This is regenerating power. This is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This is God's workmanship. We will do those good works because we're alive in Christ, created in Christ, quickened together with Christ, saved by grace through faith. We're His workmanship. Brother, I think that the context speaks more loudly than the grammatical arguments. <clears throat> now, what kind of power is this? We'll turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians and look at verse 19. Paul prays for these, these precious uh, Gentiles, these pagans that have been brought out of darkness into the glorious light of the Lord Jesus. And he prays for them and he wants their, the eyes of their understanding to be enlightened. And he says in verse 19, so that they might understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. He says, I want you to understand the power that God manifests to you. What power is that? It's His own almighty power by which He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is resurrection power. It is a power that raises those who are dead unto life. It's not only true physically, it's true spiritually. It's the very power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead that God operates in our own hearts, raising us spiritually from the dead, bringing us into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I pray that you would understand that. I want you to be enlightened. I want you to understand God's power to you. God's power to you is not that you figured out what to believe. God's power is that He's raised you from spiritual death into union with Christ. And He's seated you with Christ in heavenly places. You are alive. You're alive in the power of God. 
good, and that's good news for God's children. We're alive. We're not dead. This is why we believe the Word of God. That's why Christ is precious to us. That's why we read the Word of God and it speaks to me. It isn't just that, well, it's a nice holy book. The Buddhists have their book. The, the, the Muslims have their book. I've got my book. We all read our holy books. No. Brethren, for those made alive in Christ, this is God's love letter from heaven. This is God's voice. Here we come and we learn of our God. This is part of His power to us who believe. He's made us alive and given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to believe. What incredible power. It takes those who love their sins and turns them to believe in Christ. Gives them a heart to hate their idols and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. What incredible power. You see, this is what he's saying all through Ephesians. You were pagans. You were idolaters. You lived like the rest of the Gentiles. You were cut off from God. You were cut off from the covenants of promise and the hope and life of God. You were out there in your darkness with hearts that did not understand, that did not believe. You were damned by the very law of God and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Brethren, we need Paul's prayer for ourselves. Lord, enlighten our eyes that we might understand your great power to us who believe. Because when we do, we'll praise Him. Blessing and glory and honor and power. We'll say it's all to the Lamb because of what He's done for us. It is a transforming power. And it is in those he is brought to faith and made alive. The most beautiful example we have of that is, of course, Lazarus. Turn to John chapter 11. Turn to John chapter 11. This is a glorious illustration. Children, even you can understand this. John chapter 11, verse 39. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Now, let's look at the picture. He's dead. He didn't pass out. He's not simply unconscious. He's dead. They put him in the tomb. They put the rock over it. (laughs) He's dead. What can Lazarus do? Nothing. He's dead. This is why Mary is grieving. This is why Martha is grieving. They both said to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's hard not to think, I don't want to read anything into the Scriptures, but it's hard not to think by the fact that Martha went out to Him first, Mary just stayed in the house, and then she goes out later. It's hard not to see in that that somehow or another they're hurt that He didn't come. They both say to Him, if you'd been here, He wouldn't be dead. Jesus said, didn't I say to you, If you believe, you'd see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice. He didn't whisper. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Now what happened? You notice that Jesus did not say, I'm going to sit 
and wait for Lazarus to come to me. I'm waiting for him to make up his mind whether he's going to cast his vote with, with me and live or not. Lazarus is dead. Jesus called him. He didn't say anyone, someone, anybody. Would someone please hear me? He said, Lazarus, get up and come out. Come forth. Christ's call to Lazarus was attended by such power as to bring forth the principle of life in Lazarus. And brethren, this is our understanding. This is the glorious picture of efficacious grace. As there was nothing in Lazarus that could get him up and walk out of the tomb and say, all right, I'm here because I chose to come. He came forth for one reason. The effectual call of Jesus Christ. This is our doctrine. We believe that spiritually men are all Lazaruses, dead in the caves of their lives. This is why they live to the lust of the flesh. This is why they live fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And when Jesus calls each Lazarus to Himself, through the glory of the Gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the very power that raised up Christ from the dead opens the sinner's heart and makes him alive. Come forth! Lazarus was dead and could not bring himself to life by an act of his will. He didn't help Jesus raise himself from the dead. Jesus didn't need his help. And he doesn't need ours spiritually. He comes by the power of His Gospel and the power of His Spirit. They work together. This is why Paul says the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Because when it comes effectually by the call of Jesus Christ, those in their spiritual darkness awaken like Lazarus in the tomb and they turn repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Conversion. Lazarus obeyed Christ only because Jesus first brought him to life by His efficacious grace, by His effectual call. The only way Lazarus could come forth was that the very power of life attended the call of Christ. That's the way dead sinners come to Christ. We think that anyone hearing that would rejoice and say there is a God who does save. It is a shame that there are objections. We won't spend a lot of time on our objections. But let me just offer a some quick ones before we close this evening. As I said at the beginning of our studies here uh, on efficacious grace, I said that the Scriptures do teach that there are times when men resist the grace of God. When we speak of efficacious grace or irresistible grace, we do not mean that every act of grace of God towards sinners is effectual. The Bible doesn't teach that. What it teaches is that when God calls His elect to Him, He does not fail. Acts chapter 5, excuse me, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. 
Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, filled with the Spirit of God, preaching with great power to his kinsmen, gives them a glorious summary of the Old Testament history, and then concludes by saying, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Can men resist the Holy Ghost? The Bible says so. We believe that. They can resist the merciful call of Christ in the workings of the Spirit. They can resist it. They can hear it. They say, I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't believe this. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached, and the Spirit of God moved in such a way as that 3,000 were converted. Stephen, filled with the Holy Ghost, preached, and they killed him. What was the difference? Efficacious grace. The Spirit of God was coming for his elect on the day of Pentecost. Not everybody in Jerusalem was converted that day. And when Peter, uh, when uh, Stephen preached, he finished by saying, "Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost." And then he makes it even bigger: "As your fathers did, so do ye." So it wasn't just this generation that resisted the overtures of the Holy Spirit. When they heard the prophets, they were hearing God's Word and it was empowered by God's Spirit. The, the prophets were filled with God's Spirit. Peter tells us that they spake by the Spirit of God. And when Isaiah spoke, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, and all the rest spoke, Israel heard the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. And yet they said, no, we won't have it. We're okay. We like the way we live. We like our gods up on the altars, uh, up on the high places, and the altars that we've created. And we won't listen to these hard-headed, stubborn prophets. In fact, they killed most of them. As they killed Stephen. And as they killed the holy, uh, our holy Lord Jesus Christ. Can men resist the Holy Ghost? Absolutely. Our doctrine is not that every, every work of the Holy Ghost, every bit of grace is irresistible. We're saying that when God comes for the bride of Christ, when He sends the Spirit, to open the darkened heart, open the eyes, open the ears, those who have this effectual call will see and believe. They will repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no evidence that there was any saving graces in these that refused Stephen's sermon. As a matter of fact, Stephen said it exactly correctly. He said, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. If you remember in our study week before last, uncircumcised in heart meant that there was a covering over the heart that resisted the Word of God. It is when God sends His Spirit to circumcise the heart that men believe. There's no evidence in the passage that they resisted grace working in them. They resisted the Spirit in the prophets, in Christ, and in the apostles. Well, let's just look at one other passage quickly and then we'll close for this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the Spirit, the things of the Spirit of God. 
for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is the man dead in his trespasses and sins. And once again, Paul says in language that is as clear as uh, it can be, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. He cannot know them in the state that he's in. He can hear them time and time and time again and say, yeah, mm -hmm, nice, yeah. But he will never close with them. He will never turn from his sin to Christ. except God makes him alive. They are spiritually discerned, and he doesn't have the spiritual equipment. God must quicken so that they receive the things of the Spirit. This is why the Jews resisted Stephen. They were stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. And they withstood Him. And this is why their forefathers withstood Christ and the prophets. And this is why any man today withstands the Gospel. No man would be saved because no man will receive the things of the Spirit unless he can spiritually discern them. And the grace of God in salvation is a new heart that's spiritually discerned. Say, so well, how do I know if I have this new heart? Do you repent of your sin and turn to Christ? You see, when we talk about the new birth, the Bible doesn't tell you how to get yourself born again. It simply commands you of your responsibilities to the Most High God. Every man is a sinner. Every man ought to turn from his sin and flee to God for pardon. No man will except God in His mercy open their hearts so that when they do believe they can say with Paul, I was dead in my sin and I walked according to the prince of the air, according to the course of this world, I walked according to the, the, the lust of my flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But God, rich in mercy, made me alive in Christ. Brethren, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Conversion is the blessed work of the Holy Spirit God's blessed work by His Spirit, granting repentance and faith to poor, dead sinners. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Holy Father, You've told us to tell men to, to believe. You've told us to tell men to repent. Because this is, in fact, their holy obligation unto a, a, a holy God. Yet they are dead, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, uncircumcised to heart, and they will resist every blessed and holy overture you make to them except you and your mercy and grace come and open their hearts. Do that here, Father. We praise you for those that you've brought to yourself. And we plead with you, Holy Lord. We plead with you to do it more. Bring the life, bring the dead to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.